December 16th, 2012, lecture discussion number 93 on the Book of Romans. And uh, obviously, uh, we've had quite, quite a week in this country. And before we begin today, it's probably best uh, to insert a little short commentary on the school shootings in Connecticut. I doubt that I have anything unique to add to it that hasn't already been said in the previous days, nor do I think anyone will find what I will say particularly profound, uh, or for that matter, even comforting. But I'm going to read it into the record uh, anyway, just so that it is here, because of, uh, frankly, the Internet audience that is all out there. And, um, and for their sake, not so much for you. Most of you have talked to me about it. But incidents um, such as these are usually accompanied uh, almost immediately, there's not even a hesitation anymore, by agenda-based commentary, uh, comments that blame God for refusing to prevent evil or the free will to choose evil. Uh, and you see things like the Crusades all the time brought up whenever. The, you see how God used the church to kill people, and they go into the Old Testament without any understanding of the pictures of Christ that are there. Or what is happening when, when people choose evil? Why, how and why God responds the way he does? And they think the Bible is hate-filled when it is, in fact, the opposite. It is love-filled. He has to interfere at some point, doesn't he? He cannot let it continue. But yet, at the same time, he did not make us robots. So, because of all of that stuff, I thought I'd throw mine in here. First, let's start first. Children were slaughtered here. But all children, all, all means all. I won't go over there and write it, but I usually do. All means all. All children are gods, all of them. The little children come to God. If God were here, the little children would come to him. So would the animals. Little children come to God. And no one can forbid them to come. No one has the power or the authority to forbid them. No one can stop them from coming. Matthew 19:14. If Jesus Christ were here and you had a child or your child sitting next to you, uh, Avery was there, she would run to Christ. Little children come to God and no one can forbid or stop them. And Christ gives a rebuke to those who try to stop the children from coming to him. So when God himself in the flesh, Jesus God in the flesh rebukes, we had best stop and and think about what we are doing or what we are thinking. We better stop, period. So the children have, to say it as briefly and as clearly as I can, children have eternal, immortal existence with God. And you can't stop them from having it. They cannot and did not reject Jesus Christ, their creator, and they will not. He is the creator of all things, and they instinctively come to him. And he even says everyone should come to him like children come to him. Come to him as the children come. But that's true. So no one needs to to despair over the destiny of those children. They are in the arms of God, as are all children. But we know, encompassed within or with the gift of existence, is free will. And with free will comes choices. And with choices comes the choice ultimately 
for either that which is good or that which is evil. The Genesis 3:24 or 20, I'm sorry, Genesis 3:20:24 brings up the knowledge of good and evil, and with that, that's a, admittedly a very complex concept. We'll cover it a little bit today. This is how this all fits in. But that concept uh, will take a lot of time, much time, to grasp it in its totality. Yet we can at least recognize the obvious, just knowing, just knowing that evil is an option allows for the many steps that lead to the act that manifests the knowledge of the evil or the impl- implementation of that evil. So evil begins with mental properties. Thinking about evil is the beginning of evil. Mental properties. There's an anatomy, steps, as I've just said. And that evil is manifested, shown in the physical or in physical properties, revealed physically, if you will. Evil minds have physical evidence to them. And many, many great pieces of literature have been written to discuss things like this. Comes to mind Dorian Gray, the painting that aged while the man did not. And the painting was corrupt and darkened and destroyed, while the man appeared to be fine. The point of that is there is a physical evidence of evil thoughts. And what happened in the Connecticut school was the physical actions of a darkened, debased mind. It's not a tragedy. Boy, that annoys me. Not a tragedy, but a deliberate choice of evil that required a series of likewise purpose decisions equally equal. Evil, sorry, equally evil. Little steps. Again, this anatomy, this process of wickedness that finally culminates in death and destruction. But you could have seen all the wickedness in the steps as well. Revealed. A tragedy is in stark contrast to this. A tragedy is an accident. A tragedy is unintended consequence or consequences or mechanical failure, if you want, or purpose or perhaps even errors in judgment, if you will. The Connecticut school shootings were the result of willful viciousness. That's what they were. So where does that leave us? Well, I'm watching those that profit rush in with their transparent agendas. And they blame whatever. They blame God. They say God shouldn't have let it happen. Why did God let it happen? Why does God let evil exist? Things that I have discussed, as you know, thousands and thousands of times, but it is as if no one hears anything in this subject at all. They blame gun access and school security and video games and Hollywood and the culture that it brings of violence and perversion. And I'm going to concede to you that our nation is being destroyed by hedonism, or secularism, whichever you wish, or narcissistic hedonism, whichever the adjectives you want for hedonism, but uh, it's being wiped out. We are in tremendous trouble in this country. But uh, first, before that, before the secular hedonism and the narcissism that is self-evident, came evolutionary monistic philosophy. The teaching of cessation of existence, the absence of judgment, the absence of a creator, the absence of morality, the absence of anything good. 
everything, ultimately. If there is no good, or I'm sorry, if, if there is no creation, ultimately you will, you will come to the conclusion there is no goodness. Altruism can't be explained by evolution, by the way. But anyway, we have this degradation now of life that is always attached to monistic philosophy. When you teach somebody that they will cease to exist, very quickly you will teach them that their life is of no value or someone else's life is of no value. That always accompanies the evolutionary monistic philosophy. And it has overwhelmed our cities, our, especially our inner cities. Life is now declared to be disposable in this country, has been for many years. We just had an election where it was affirmed to be disposable. First time in my lifetime, an entire political party stood up and booed the existence of God and celebrated the eugenics movement of Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger wanted the destruction of as many people that she did not approve of as possible. And she has, as her ally now, the abortion industry. And they are effectively executing her strategy and reducing the nation to a culture of death where the killing of the defenseless is rationalized for profit. And so here comes monism with its godless, hopeless, purposeless death attached to eugenics for money. They are hand in glove, monism and eugenics. There is never one without the other. You see, the knowing of good and evil is ultimately the choice of either good or evil. And where there has been a systematic choice for evil, we should hardly expect anything else but evil to be revealed. People say to me, well, it's the gun culture. And I'm saying to you, you should be one thing. If, if you can be one thing, you should be this. You should be prepared for evil. Anticipating and expecting darkness. You should know every day you are subject to it. And it could rise up at any minute and you'd better be prepared. Right now the uh, tendency is to attack the schools, isn't it? And so if I were a principal of a school, and I haven't been, but Bill's one, or used to be, still's one, he still gets to be one, even though he's retired. We've had a lot of teachers in here. We've got a lot of teachers in here today, percentage-wise. Notice how I put that. But when I'm at Bartlett High School, I expect somebody to pull a knife every day. Now I would expect somebody to pull a gun every day. That was a war zone when I was there. It's not anymore. It's doing well. Don't think it, it. But when I was there, it was something unique. It took a while for us to figure out what to do. That's happening in the inner schools all over the, the country. They're, these inner schools are battlefields. If I'm in Chicago, I am the most heavily armed teacher you can imagine. That's just how I'm going to be. I'm going to teach school in those inner cities with a bulletproof vest and enough ammo to defend myself against the National Guard. That's how I'm going to approach it. Now, that may seem trite, it may even seem silly, but anticipate and expect darkness and evil. When we've had this kind of inundation of it, we need to expect it to manifest itself and we need to be prepared. Always prepared. I know this is Alaska, how we think up here. I realize that. I grew up here when everybody had a rifle in the back of their car because they were anticipating a moose. 
And they did not, and they wanted to be prepared. Uh, the people up on the hillside that, that raise chickens and goats and things, and they are anticipating bears every time. They're not surprised. We need to know that evil is coming and be prepared for it. After all, when godless, hopeless, purposeless death is taught, then godless, hopeless, purposeless death is learned and chosen, and our society grows and our children grow into hollowness and vacuousness. Perhaps somebody will be equally horrified at the cause along with the manifestation of the vacuity, the emptiness that is in our children now. I I suspect not, though. Once again, death for profit is going to be chosen. And that's why I think death for profit is appropriately called pro-choice. They just don't call it pro-choice of death for profit. They leave that part off, but I always add it to them. It is, after all, a deliberate choosing. Okay, as you know, we are at Genesis 2, 3, and 4, which is about blood. 2, 3, and 4, all about blood and, and, and how it relates to Romans 5, 12, which is also about blood. It's our book of blood. But I also, before I get started, I read this to you guys. I want to say, uh, uh, I want to say hello and to Robert from Palm Desert, California. Uh, Robert, uh, your encouraging letters are very much appreciated. I read your letter to the class, Robert. They were especially thrilled by the buffet funding. They thought that was a brilliant uh, idea. And so your poll numbers are way up. I especially thank you for your listening and, and how you have taken every odd thing that I have ever said and cleverly included it uh, in your letter so my pet phrases are, are immortalized by you. And I told the, uh, the class that uh, my power continues to reach all around the world. I have tentacles now. And uh, I'm corrupting as many people as I can with the odd things I say. The class uh, mostly groaned, Robert. Uh, but do not be deterred by them. They, they, uh, they boo consistently. Okay, blood. Genesis 2, 3, and 4 is about blood, as is Romans 5, 12. Don't read it not recognizing and finding the blood. And the connection is that blood. And if you remember, if you were here, uh, and I can't assume either one, I raised a question about the death of animals last Sunday. You remember that? Animals uh, are dying all around us. They, are, they will die if we leave them alone. They will kill themselves, or they will kill each other, or they will die of natural aging, but they will die. So what is the, what is the cause of their death? Why did we understand the blood issue in Adam and how it is transferred to all of mankind, but how is it that animals got the same blood contamination or poison? How did that happen? <coughs> you can make the case for the serpent, but how about the rest of the animals? So I raised that question. As well, I also equated salvation with existence in the sense that each salvation and existence cannot be dissected. Everybody wants to dissect 
existence from free will. They want to separate it from free will. They also want to do the same thing by, with salvation. What I, what I mean by that, uh, the very definition of existence includes immortality or timelessness, if you will, and free will. You cannot take, if you're going to say, I exist, then you are also saying that you are immortal and you are also saying that you have free will. Existence requires all of those to be the case. If you have none of, if all you have, if you think you have existence without free will, then what? What do you really have? You do not have existence. If you think you have existence without immortality or continued existence or timelessness, then you do not have existence. You have the illusion of existence. But it is only temporal. And if it is temporal, it cannot be existence. There is no such thing as temporary existence. We'll get more to that in a second. You cannot dis- dissect, if you will, the uh, free will from immortality and, and, uh, and existence. All of those are so interconnected they cannot be separated. And by the way... That this very definition of existence, which includes immortality or timelessness and free will, those are attributes that are, where is the origin of timelessness, free will, and existence? If I have to figure out where did it come from, where does existence come from, who has these attributes? Well, those attributes originate and are owned by God. God is timeless and God has free will. God is outside of time, not subject to time, and God chooses. And what does God always choose? To go back to the commentary that I started with. God has free will. He always chooses what? He has the knowledge of something. What does he have the knowledge of? He has the knowledge of that which is good, and he has the knowledge of that which is evil. What does he always choose and cannot do? Well, he cannot. He will not choose anything but what? Good. He has knowledge of evil, but always chooses good. Compare yourself. You have knowledge of good, and what do we choose? Every time we can, we choose evil. That's us. So the knowledge of good and evil, again, a very complex uh, discussion is coming with that. But the attributes of existence, timelessness, immortality, those are God uh, uh, characteristics. He's timeless and he chooses. um, And thus it becomes obvious that existence is a gift that God chooses to give because its origin is in God. Existence, by definition, then answers its own question. The question of uh, people ask me all the time, and I ask you all the time because I like to hear you look at it or watch you look at it and try to figure it out and hear what you have to say. I ask all the time. I torment Seth every school day. What is existence made of? You have existence, which means you're immortal, and you have free will, and you can choose, and you can know good and evil. But what is existence made of? If I had a piece of existence uh, uh, on the table here, And I held it up. I said, hey, look, existence. What's it made of? Put it under a microscope and determine what existence is made of. What is existence composed of, if you want to think of it that way? Is existence reducible? What do I mean by that? If I had resistance, by the way, is existence spatially extended? That's another thing that I'm asking. If I can make, if I can give existence a location, and can I put existence in a box? Here's my box of existence. 
Is existence reducible? What do I mean by that? Can I make a part? Is there particles of existence? So if I have one great big piece of existence, are there little tiny particles in it that I can reduce it to? Yes or no? Existence reducible? Anyway, all of these questions apply to God. What is God composed of? Is God reducible? Is God a particle? Is God a particle? He tells you what he is. Does he ever call himself a particle? No, he doesn't. So, so ask those same, same questions. I'll let you work that out whilst I move along. Salvation is similar to existence in that it too comes as a whole that is not divisible. One of the most common errors in the church today is to try to make salvation divisible, just like existence. Just as existence cannot be temporal or devoid of some level of free will, you cannot separate a level of free will from existence or you don't have existence. A robot or a zombie, you remember those discussions on robot and zombie worlds, I can imagine a world where I have animation, but I don't have free will, right? Is that existence? And I think we have relatively exposed that existence requires free will. If you do not have free will, do you really exist? As I repeat that question many times. Now let's apply that to salvation. Salvation cannot be cleaved or separated from timelessness or belief. Salvation also is timeless, eternal, if you will. If it is not eternal, then it is not salvation. Same argument. So notice the relationship between timelessness and immortality and free will and belief. To put it in other words, it may or may not be helpful. If someone says, and I'm borrowing a phrase from James 2.14, If someone says, and in James 2.14, the someone that says is an evil person, a Pharisee in that particular portion of James 2.14. If someone says, for example, that salvation is merely temporary and dependent upon yourself or your works or human effort or human will, then that someone is not talking about salvation. Because salvation cannot be temporary to be salvation. The very definition of salvation requires that it be timeless. Salvation, in order to be salvation, must be eternal. There is no such thing as temporary salvation. Think it through. If you have temporary salvation, what do you really have? You have an illusion of salvation because it will end. If it will end, it's not salvation. Anything that will end is not existence and is not salvation. Does that make sense? So if somebody comes to you and says, your salvation will end if you do the following thing then you don't really have salvation. What do you have? If it isn't salvation, what is it? What's the opposite of salvation? Salvation is also called what? Life. If you don't have life, what do you have? What's the opposite of life? So if you have temporary salvation, what do you have? Death. It's really pretty basic. Just as temporary or temporal existence is illusionary, existing existence, let me repeat that carefully. Temporary existence is illusionary existence. Waiting to be exposed is illusionary existence. Does that make sense? 
All you have is something that sooner or later will be exposed as nothing. Temporary salvation is simply no salvation. Waiting to be revealed is no salvation. It's the same thing. All of both are the same. Illusionary existence equals temporary existence equals no existence. Does that make sense? It may not. You may already be asleep. That's okay. You will know that somebody somewhere said existence has to be eternal in order to be existence, and it has to have free will in order to be existence. That will go into your little mind, or big mind, whichever is the case, and someday you will, you will use it as it should be used. The same thing is true with salvation. Temporary or temporal salvation equals works-based salvation, and works-based salvation equals death. You really don't have salvation if it is temporary. You have instead a, a process that ends in death. So if I have a process that ends in death, if you say to me, I have salvation now, I got it right now, but as I go through time, what am I going to have? See, you put it inside of time, didn't you? As I go through time, what happens? Oh, well, I lose it. And what's the result of me losing it? Death. So salvation is dependent upon what? Time. Salvation is not dependent upon time. God's specific. Just like existence, salvation is timelessness. It is timeless. When someone says that salvation is transient or conditional, then that someone is actually saying there is no salvation. And if there is no salvation, then God is what? He's lying when he says there is salvation. So God is lying. When you say there is only temporary salvation, then you have said God is lying. And that there is only death and that there's no solution to free will then and free will choice of death or free will death. And now we're back to Genesis 3, 1 through 4, right? And that is the essence of Satan's question to the woman in Genesis 3, 1. The infamous or infamous hath God said from the old King James. Hath God said equals no salvation from sin. That's what Satan is saying to the woman there. There is no salvation to free will uh, choosing sin. There is no solution to it. Matthew 4, Genesis 15. I know I keep saying it. I keep repeating it. But we're in Romans 5, 12. Okay. Next in line is animals on our agenda today. The naming of animals. Animals with names. Animals with with names that were sacrificially slain on Passover. And we should read that, so let's do that. Genesis 3.20. Okay. I'll wait and have medicine. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, I've got to do this justice. Behold, look at how far I got off the ground. That was, let me do it again. Wow, I landed on my toes and broke four of them. But he said, Behold, what does behold mean in the Bible? I'll put it right here. Behold, what does it mean? When you see behold, what do you do? And God said it. What do you do when you see it? You know 
an amazing, very difficult to understand truth is about to happen. So let's go again. And Adam called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Notice the because. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord, what do we have here? I have an order. Adam called his wife because... The Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. There we are now back to good and evil. Knowing it. If you know it, what's the problem now? If you know what's good and you know what's evil, what's your problem? Think that through. And now, he, lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God, notice the sentence isn't finished there. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken, as opposed to the ground that was inside the garden. Notice the difference there. Adam was not made from the ground inside the garden. He was made from ground outside of the garden and put inside the garden. Eve is made, or the woman is made out of Adam and not from the ground in the sense directly. Then he is sent out of the garden to till that ground which was from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, okay, the order is of great significance. First, I have the renaming of the woman. I renamed the woman. And what did I name her? I call her something else. I don't call her woman anymore. What do I call her? I call her life. Start telling yourself that her new name is life. As opposed to what is she? And I ask this all the time. She's what right now? She's dying. Why in the world would I call a dying woman life? But that's what he does. What made him do that? Great wisdom made him do that. Because she's going to be the mother of all living. How can a dying woman be the mother of all living? But Adam, being, the, being extraordinarily intelligent, figured this out very, very fast. And then I have slain animals. Animals that I have named are now slain. The slain of named animals. And what's the reason for killing these animals? The first animals ever killed. Why were they killed? Did they do anything? They did nothing. They have no guilt. But they are sacrificially slain. And I make the case that it's been done on Passover, and they're slain because we need to have coverings. Why do we need to have coverings? Don't we have coverings already? We do. What are the coverings that they already have on them? Figs. Fig leaves, if you will. And they're covered uh, head to foot with them. I, I, I'm going to tell you that they're, they're covered completely, all the top of their head to their feet with figs, leaves. Why did they do that? Because Adam is very, very smart. That's why. Same reason he, he names his woman Eve. It has everything to do or names his woman, the, the woman life, has everything to do with these fig leaf coverings as well. He has figured it out. 
And we need to figure it out as well. And then number four, then the behold comes. So I got the renaming, the slaying of the animals, the coverings, and then the behold. And then the hand and the taking from the tree. This has got to be, we can't allow this, lest he do this. And then the tree of life is in here. It's a tree, and it's not the tree of death. It is the tree of life. And then I have the live forever aspect. We can't let him take from the tree of life or he will live forever. What's wrong with living forever? Don't we all want to live forever? No, if he takes from the tree of living forever, if you will, while he is in sin, then he will be in sin and death forever. God wants to stop him from that. So he never makes that decision. I know this is repetitive for most of you, but assume that we have a visitor. Then he has to, then they are driven out. He drives them out of the garden. Think of it this way. You have a ten-year-old child that has found something in the store and you have to pry it out of their hands and drag them out of Car's Safeway, much to the amusement of all the other customers. Okay? That is what God had to do to Adam and the woman who is now named Life. He had to drive them out. And he drove them out which direction? They went out of which direction? They went out of the east. Why the east? What happens in the east? Why do we drive them? Don't tell me they make silk. Why why didn't, don't you ever want to know, why didn't he drive them out of the south? Why didn't he drive them out of the north or the west? No, he drove them out of the east. Why? Do you think that that's some little happenstance uh, detail? Was it the closest place to drive them out? Why the east? What happens in the east? Come on. Come on. What? Sun comes up? That's absolutely correct. It has a relationship to the greater light, doesn't it? What is that relationship? Anyway, then we have the cherubs, or the cherubim, that are there now. Why did he pick them? He could have picked the seraphim, he could have picked Michael, but he doesn't. He he picks exactly the same, if you will, as Satan. And then the Shekinah glory, which is, uh, uh, if you will, also called the glory of God. In this case, it's called the flame of the flaming sword, but it is the Shekinah glory. It is God Himself, or the presence of God is there. So God Himself is standing there guarding the tree of life from the hand of the man or the woman, and He is surrounded by His cherubs that are still with Him that did not fall. So there's our story so much. And sometimes, more likely most times, when a passage is read, there's a tendency to disconnect it from itself. It's not. You cannot, just like you cannot take free will and timelessness from existence, or or you cannot take timelessness or eternity from salvation, this is the same thing. You cannot say, oh, the woman was named Eve, and then the Shekinah glory is there, and they have no relationship. It is an order. It is a whole. Things happen subsequent. Same things are conditional or dependent. I'll repeat that in a minute. 
Sometimes, but like I said, most likely, most of the time, when these people, when people read this or talk to me about it, they have disconnected it from itself. And what I mean by that, they have taken away the cause and effect. The slain animals, if you will, you want to think this way. This is not doctrinally sound, by the way. It's a human perspective, not a God perspective. But the animals are slain because, if you will, are caused by the renaming of the woman. Does that make sense? No? Okay, back up again. I have the naming of the woman life. The next logical thing that happens when I rename this woman who's dying life, the next logical thing, the thing that makes the most sense, is to kill two animals and cover the people with the skin. That makes sense because of this. It may not make sense to you, but it makes sense. Pretty soon it will make sense to you. You will start to figure it out. There's this relationship between the verses that are discarded as if they don't exist, and they do exist, and that's a grave mistake. Don't disconnect this stuff. See it instead as a building, if you will, blocks stacked on top, if that works for you. Adam renaming the dying woman life, if you want to say it this way, causes the slain animals. The order is not insignificant. Causes, for lack of a better description, again, put it in italics because I know the doctrinal issues of that. So again, let me repeat it badly. Adam renaming the dying woman life causes the lack of, a, for a better description, the slain of the animals for coverings. And that causes or precipitates the behold being said. I'm saying behold because these two things have happened in that order. And the behold is the reason for the driving out, if you will, if you want to skip ahead some. For a correct analysis of Genesis 3, 20 through 24, it then becomes critical to ask why and how so the preceding verse or the preceding event, if you wish, or the preceding item affects the subsequent item or verse or passage. How does this happen? Or renaming to the coats of skin, to behold. That's a logical order. One event leads naturally to the other. If Adam, think of this badly said this, if Adam does not rename the woman life, then what doesn't happen? That's, that's, that's human perspective, not God's perspective. But I'm just giving it to you in this way so you might be able to understand it. If Adam did not rename the woman life, then the slain of the animals would not have happened, to put it in our human terms. And if the covering of skins did not occur, then the behold declaration is not given. So what I'm saying to you is that this is dependent on that, and this is dependent on that and that. Does that make sense? Don't separate them, or you'll never understand this story. They not only lead to one another, but they're dependent and conditional on one another. If I call this A, and I call this B, here's A, and here's B, and here's C. If I don't have A, I don't get B, and I don't get C. Without A, there cannot be a B or a C, etc. Now, what we've got to do now is figure out the why and the how so, this is the case. Obviously, Adam, the one who names, he's the namer, right? That's his job. 
He has this incredible mental capacity to name millions and millions of living animals individually. And it's astonishing to the angelic host that is watching him do it. He can not only do it, but he can make it make sense. He can remember it all. And he doesn't ever repeat himself, unlike, say, me. Robert, I just had more medicine, just in case you wondered why. A little delay there. The one who names Adam renames the woman Eve life. And thereby, after his sentencing, by the way, after he is sentenced by the judge for his crime, he expresses something by giving this name. In other words, think of it this way. We've had a trial, right? Uh, We had a confession. We had a crime committed. We had an investigation. We had a prosecution. We, We had confession. And then the time for the sentencing has happened. And now, after the sentencing, think of it this way, the judge says to the convicted, do you have anything to say? After the sentencing, do you have anything to say? Not before the sentencing, after. And Adam says, yes, I'm renaming her life. And what does God do? He slays two animals. And then what does he say? Behold! This is amazing! What you just did. That is incredible what Adam just did. Guilty. Sentenced. Looked at his sentence. Looked at her sentence. See, what would we do? Let's just talk about me. If I'm standing there with Lori and Lori gets the sentence, I'm going to watch her sentence and go, okay, that really isn't too bad. She got off pretty easy. I might get off pretty easy. Then I find out my sentence. I got crushed. Hey, wait a minute. She's the first one deceived. I just tried to fix it. I, you know, how come I'm getting a beating here like this? And, I, and he says, you got anything to say? I'd say, hey, I think I got a little harder sentence than, than the woman here. I'm renaming her unfair. This isn't right. Hi, this isn't right. You got away with something. That would be her new name. That is not what Adam did. He said, the woman's name is life. What's, that? what's his name? We covered this a couple weeks ago. If the woman's name is life, what's his name? Death. His name is death. That's what Romans 5.12 tells you. He's the father of death. She's the mother of life. He knows it. He knows that because he is the father of death, that she is the mother of life. He gets it. Renaming the woman life tells you that he knows that he's death. As he's identified in Romans 5.12. That's just part of it. That's just a very small part of what he understands. After this sentencing, Adam expresses something. He makes a statement. What is it a statement of? Is it more confession? No, it's a statement of understanding, and it's an understanding and a belief of something. What does he believe now? Who does he believe? He believes that the sentence 
is going to be put into place and he knows who said the sentence and he believes the, the sentencer. He believes that God is going to do something. Okay, so what does this renaming actually mean? We'll get to it more next week. God then responds. If you want to think of it, think of it, uh, you know, in the music, you have what's called a call and answer in blues or jazz. The, the orchestra will play something and the soloist will answer. So think of this as a call and answer. He renames the woman. That's the call. Here's the answer. The slain animals and the behold. God responds, if you want to think of it that way, if it helps you. Adam's act of renaming the woman is the reason for the slaying of the animals and the fashioning of the covering, again, this interdependency. So let's approach from that perspective and ask the obvious questions now, while we still have a few minutes. Obviously, God considers the coverings, his coverings that he is going to make to be indispensable. And he is only going to cover somebody that understands why the woman is renamed life and why he, therefore, is death. He is only going to cover somebody that understands that. So when that happens, then we have the slaying of the animals in the covering. Okay? And his coverings are indispensable. And the fig coverings that are on them right now, top of head to bottom of feet, if you want to think of it that way, that's the way I think it's, it happened. I know many, many people disagree with me on this and bless their hearts. I know it's hard to go through life wrong all the time. But that's their fate. I'm sorry. <laughs> but God looks at their fig coverings and He declares them to be useless and He rejects them. And that is critical information. You have any fig coverings on yourself? Uh, he declares them to be useless and He rejects them immediately. And then, uh, the, so, we have the renaming and we have the fig covering uh, of the dying, deceived woman being the turning point. And it is an expressed belief that Adam has. Both of those things. The fact that he covered himself with figs tells you something about what he's thinking. The fact that Adam renames the woman tells you something about what he's thinking. He renames a fig-covered, dying, deceived woman. That understanding causes, and that expression of that understanding causes... See, think about it. He's standing there with a fig-covered woman who has died, who is dying, and is deceived. And he says, "God, I am renaming little Miss Fig-covered dummy here life." That's what he's doing. And God says, "Wow, that's an amazing belief and understanding." And, and I'm, we now, we're going to kill the animals, and we're going to cover you and get rid of the fig coverings because your fig coverings are rejected. And they're useless to me. Mine are indispensable, vital, if you will. Let me get you go, you just finish this off, Dave, and I'll get you. And that truth is then demonstrated that Adam believes something, and the fact that he believes something that caused him to name the fig-covered, deceived dummy woman. I know I'm going to mail for that. The fact that he calls her life demonstrates that he believes something very, very profound and true. And that he's expressing that truth. Uh, and, and a covering comes. And it's fashioned and provided by God himself. And from, he does it from the death of uh, one that has no guilt, if you will. Or ones that have no guilt. 
somebody, if you will, that has, um, and I know I'm talking about animals here, but animals that have no part whatsoever in the crime, in the choice to sin, in the rejection of God's commandments, animals that have nothing to do with it, they, uh, they are slain. And that seems to be unfair. Why, what did those animals ever do to have their existence terminated? That is a trick statement. Once you decide they have existence, then you have decided that they are timeless. Because you cannot have existence without timelessness. Anyway, a covering fashioned and provided by God himself from the death of one that has no guilt, no part whatsoever in the crime, in the choice to sin. And that is given, that, that, that skin covering is given to those who express a belief in the truth represented by the renaming of the dead woman. Um, not only does Adam know that she is the life, but she knows it too. They both know it. Because how do I know that's the case? They're both covered. And she's standing there next to him, trusting him, saying, I agree with Adam. He's right. He's death. I'm life. And they both got the skin covering. Both had to believe in order to get the skin covering. Does that make sense? Or the blood covering? I've had, I had somebody here a couple of weeks ago that told me Adam was not saved. I'm going, okay, let me go back here. Also for Adam, God made tunic of skin and his wife and clothed them. They both got a blood covering from an innocent, guiltless animal that demonstrated in, in type a picture of Christ. They both got coverings from an innocent that had no guilt, and they're, therefore they're both saved. Now comes the, the great and mysterious behold of Genesis 3.22. Something that cannot be said or won't be said until after the previous two steps. Again, both steps are necessary for the behold to happen. Now I'm not telling you yet what causes the behold other than this is clearly a, a statement that, that is a belief-based statement that causes salvation to be given to them and then we have a behold after salvation, don't we? God says the behold. Never forget that. It's God saying behold. And it's the third behold of Genesis and the second behold that God himself speaks. So obviously, what do we do now to figure out what the behold means? We go back and we compare it to the other beholds. We find the beholds that are pre preceding this behold and we put them all side by side. Just as we're going to have to compare the Eden of Ezekiel 28 to the Eden of Genesis 3. It's the same Eden. And the tree of life in Revelation 2.22 to the tree of life in Genesis 3.22. So, uh, by the way, so you can look ahead. The tree of life is unguarded again in Revelation 22. What causes the unguarding of the tree? What causes the guarding of the tree? And then what causes the unguarding? If you figure out the unguarding, you're going to figure out the guarding. How easy is that? I know I'm going fast now. 
Anyway, once the fig coverings have been rejected by God and removed and replaced by the blood coverings, then and only then is the great behold spoken by God. And what's the obvious question now? I'll wait. What do I ask now? Let me repeat it. Once the fig coverings have been rejected, okay, once the renaming of the woman to life, the acknowledgement that the, the namer is death, then I get the slain animals and the fig coverings removed, and then and only then do I now get the behold, which is conditional and dependent on those two things, those steps, if you will. And what's the obvious question? The great behold is spoken. How loud a voice is the great behold? And this whole sentence, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. What's the obvious question? Come on, you can do this. Huh? Yeah, who is it for? Very good. Yay for the lovely wife. Why did he say, who's he saying it for? Is he saying it for Adam and the wife that now named life? He's not saying it for them, is he? Who's he saying? Who's watching? These guys already know. Adam comes up there with his fig leaves on and he says, I know the fig leaves are coming off. I know animals are being slain. I got it. And I'm going through the procedure. It's now my turn to explain that I know. God says, what do you have to say? It's not really in there, I'm adding it. Adam says, renaming little Miss Fig Face here, life. That makes me death. Both are saved. Right at that, the next thing they're done is saved. And then the behold comes out. And they already know. They got this all worked out. Who doesn't know? Who else is there at the trial, if you will? Millions and millions, right? Of course, the angelic host is watching. And they have seen this deal before in one sense because this is the fall of the second king of Eden. We've already had a king of Eden fall. That was Satan. This is the fall of the second king. And the angelic host is watching this. And it's both sides of the angelic host. I got you, Terry. I got the, I got the fallen side and the unfallen side, if you will. And both of them are watching. You need to start wondering, why did God say this for them? What did they think? What did the think, if you will, the good side think? And what did the evil side think? When they saw good and evil, when they heard now they know good and evil, what did they think? Oh, is he talking about us? Is the good? We're the evil. We're the good. Those are evil. That's how I think. I'm good. You're all evil. I'm kidding. <laughs> What are both sides thinking? What is different about this second fall of the second king and the first fall of the first king of Eden? What's different between Ezekiel 28 and Genesis 3? What's the same of Ezekiel 28 and Genesis 3? And this verse, Genesis 3.22, when you read that, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. What do you think? 
Is that good? Let me finish. And now lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Is that good or is that bad that he said that? Is that good news that Adam hears that? Adam's standing there and God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he puts out his hand and take also from the tree of life, I'm going to guard it from him. Does Adam go, that's bad or that's good? What does he do? That's good. It's good. What do the angels do? Some rejoice. Some do not rejoice. It is sad if you want to think of it that way, but it's good and it is mercy. It's sad, but the man, the federal head, he now knows good and evil, and he knows death, and he has seen death, and he has felt death, and he is covered in death. But the key to that is he's covered. And that's good. And if you must know evil, if you must know death, then what do you need? If I'm going to send you out here today, I'm going to say, okay, class, we're going to dismiss in one minute when Terry pushes the button. And you're going to go outside and you're going to see a whole bunch of evil and death. Here's your suit. I'm going to put these suits on you. Is that good? Think radiation. You're about to go out into radiation and I'm going to put a suit on you. Am I good or bad? I'm good. Yay for the suit guy. I got a crappy suit on. That's on the internet now. I got a really bad suit. It's made out of paper. I painted them all the time. They're horrible. You sweat like a pig. You feel like a pig being roasted. It's horrible. That's my suit. And a guy comes up to me and says, hey, I got, I got a better suit than that. I'm going to like that guy. And the last thing I want to do is to go out into radiation with a paper painting suit on. That's what your fig leaves are. That's what your works-based salvation garbage is. It's paper tissue junk. Quit it. You need a real suit. And he's going to give you one. Notice the protective aspect of this. Of Genesis 3.17, Genesis 3.21, Genesis 3.23. The curse is protective. The curse of, of the soil, the earth, is protecting Adam, and Adam knows it. The garments are protective. The tree is protected. And out of the two, and out the two go, Adam and the wife, into the world, a world that is soon to be filled with evil. And they got a suit on. That's great. We can take it. We can handle it. God took care of us. It's good. Behold, you've got a suit. And you got a suit. Because of the slain blood of these innocents. And because you know and believe me. You know what has happened. You know evil now. And you know that knowing evil, let me hit you with this. You know that knowing evil is to choose evil. The fact that you know it now makes it likely you'll choose it. That's the mental property aspect of it. And then it will manifest itself physically. But thank God. God, you've got a suit. Let's rise and be dismissed.